It's the biggest lie ever told in the space. And it, it makes sense why that lie is so propagated, that Ethereum has achieved the network effect. Uh, Consensus built its entire business and marketing model to basically make that lie. No, it's the great lie of, of our space. For every one Ethereum well, dApp well, created. For, for in, in fairness, it is true today. No, it's I would not. Say no, because uh, let me explain. Let me explain. For every one dApp created on Ethereum, there are a thousand cell phone applications created. So they say we're the dominant platform. Yes, you're the dominant platform. It's like saying you're the biggest fish in a very tiny pond next to the ocean. All right, everybody, welcome back to Masari's Unqualified Opinions. I do want to kick off by doing a quick thank you to our sponsors. I want to thank you to Luca. Save money this tax season with Luca Tax. It's the only time-tested crypto tax software that allows you to calculate cap gains and losses and see the results using three different accounting methods side by side. If you just use FIFO, you're probably paying more than you need to. If you don't know what that means, consult a tax attorney. Do that anyway. You can use promo code Masari Tax to save even more. Head over to Luca Tax. That's Luca L-U-K-K-A tax.com and use our promo code to save money and do your taxes correctly. Stay out of jail. Uh, thank you to Bitstamp as well. They were a sponsor of Mainnet Conference. They're the original global crypto exchange, been around since 2011 through three halvings. And they've been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors along the way for quite some time. About 4 million customers. Got a matching engine from NASDAQ, some of the best APIs in the industry, and an integration with TradeView. Uh, Bitstamp also delivers unmatched customer service. Real people, no bots uh, around the clock. They are pros. They're bit licensed. And they've been through the ringer from a regulatory and product standpoint, being around for as long as they have. You can get discounted access uh, to Masari Pro using promo code BITSTAMP, as they were the recent sponsor of our having series as well. Crypto.com was also a sponsor of Mainnet. Times are tough, so they're introducing three different measures to help their community. Using the Crypto.com app and credit card, they're waiving the 3.5% credit card fee on all crypto purchases and offering 10% back when you use the MCO Visa card on food and groceries. And as always, you can buy gift cards on the Crypto.com app for merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, and more. 20% back on food and additional 10% back on groceries to help out during these very trying times. Don't mean to diminish that. Don't know why I did air quotes. Hope you're all staying safe, though. Download the Crypto.com app today. And then finally, Choice by Kingdom Trust. If you own Bitcoin and have a retirement account, but you don't own Bitcoin in your retirement account, what the fuck are you doing? Check out Choice by Kingdom Trust. You can have Bitcoin, stocks, ETFs, gold, and more all-in-one retirement accounts. First thousand users to open a cho Choice IRA will receive some free Bitcoin, 60 bucks worth to be exact. So you can join the waitlist at retirewithchoice.com slash Masari and share with friends to secure free Bitcoin. Podcast listeners receive extra points to move up the wait list. So again, sign up at our link, retirewithchoice.com slash Masari. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with for exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space. Check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. That's it. It wasn't that painful and you got to support these guys because they support us. And we're trying to use all of their money to build a better product and help you understand what is going on throughout this industry. So without further ado, go to masari.io, check out the newsletter, check out the mainnet videos, 
And most importantly, if you want to continue to subscribe to these live updates, crowdcast.io slash 2bitidiot for other updates. Now, without further ado, I'm going to invite Charles Hoskinson to the stage. We missed him at Mainnet due to a scheduling snafu, but we're going to correct that and then some in this live conversation with Charles Hoskinson. Charles, for better or for worse, I am not going to play you off with the guitar because my fingers are numb. I've been playing so much guitar the last couple of weeks, I think I have nerve damage. Just it's on your fingers? I have the calluses forming, Charles. I have the calluses, so I got to let the skin heal and get get them nice and, and brittle. That way I can play even more extreme versions <laughs> of, of my guitar uh, once I get my electric back after moving to Citadel number three during this pandemic. Yeah, Charles. sorry about sorry about missing your conference. By the way, uh, we confused Eastern Standard with Mountain Standard time. I think that was the, the rookiest <laughs> mistake you could make. To be fair, though, uh, I think my speaking it happens adjusting for the time zone was like six thirty in the morning. So I it was yeah it was it was it was, yeah. it was early and um and when you I kind of expected you to to say hey can I do like this later slot which we also had available and then um and then your team came back and said no no this works so we we're like okay we'll kick off with Cardano um you know what it's just as well because I think you would have been the first slot that day. I think we probably have more viewers for the standalone session than, than we might have uh, early yeah. in the day during the conference. So um, all's well that ends well. It's about about even, Stephen, I, I'd say, uh, versus where we were um, where we were with most sessions. Charles, you got a lot of upcoming milestones to talk mm-hmm. about that we were going to talk about last, uh, last week, two weeks ago at, at Mainnet. Um, but I want to give you the opportunity to kind of give the, the 10, 15 minute update on Cardano, where things are. And uh, and then we can get into uh, some some kind of nitpicky questions and I'll, sure. I'll kind of poke there. And uh, we're also going to invite Wilson, our lead analyst uh, who covers Cardano, right. um, to to ask a couple of questions as well. So, but first, um, how are you and how's the project? Been? Well, things are going really well. I mean, we were in uh, development hell for a long time. You know, we uh, we had kind of two parallel groups working. And one didn't really measure up. So we missed all of our early deadlines and uh, and benchmarks that we had set. And then we had to kind of just consolidate and go with the other uh, horse. But that horse was a little slower out the gate. So uh, 2018 was a very hard year and 2019 was a very hard year for us. And what's been nice about 2020 is that we just keep hitting all of our deadlines and all of our benchmarks, all the all the milestones that we've set up. Like we said, okay, let's get the Byron reboot out. And we said that will hit April and it hit April and uh, we had great adoption of that. We started moving exchanges to it. Then we said, hey, let's get the Pioneer test that out in May. And it looked really good in May. And so we said, all right, we'll announce some dates for the launch of Shelley. Uh, so we didn't just uh, announce one date. We announced 11. And so far, we've been systematically walking our way through them. Uh, we should be shipping the mainnet candidate uh, in the end of this month, June 30th. And we have an alternate window, July 7th, based on a test that we're going to do next week. And uh, then we're going to do the hard fork to turn on Shelly in uh, late July. I believe that's July 29th. And then after that, August 3rd, all the ITN rewards roll over. And August 18th, uh, all the registered stake pools are going to start making blocks. So it, it really is beautiful to see all these super complicated pieces that were built by engineers over a year and a half actually start being pulled together and working like we thought they were going to work. And it's, uh, it's a great uh, it's a great. Uh, you know, success of methodology, I should say, because we used a lot of formal methods and simulations and things like that to verify that what we thought was true was going to be true. But to actually see it working in real life uh, and actually have 
external users using it and being able to just have it all go off without a hitch is truly an amazing thing. You know, the other thing is when we find bugs, we can fix them so quickly. Like we're right now doing this performance profiling where we're slowly walking our way through all the ledger rules. And every now and then we find some asymptotic complexity and we say, hey, this is a this is a problem. We need to fix this here. It's uh, It should be linear, but it's quadratic. And we can just fix it today. You know, and so that's a testimony to low technical debt, really good code. Uh, to be able to kind of just walk through what you have in in a matter of hours to days, be able to uh, to snuff out bugs, but uh, not to be outdone, we got the virtual summit July second, third. Uh, we have some great guests: Stephen Wolfram and uh, the creator of the internet, Vince Cerf, uh, and a lot of regulatory guests. There probably is going to be at least one head of state or high level government official there. The Wyoming crowd is going to come. A lot of our commercial partners are going to come, and it's not just a celebration launch of Shelley, but it's also going to be a discussion of where are we going to go next. So we're going to talk about the whole roadmap, Voltaire, Gogan, and these other things, talk about native assets and the extended UTXO model, talk about Plutus, talk about wind smart contracts, uh, you know, roughly what order of magnitude, when are they going to hit, what quarter, uh, these types of things. So I think people are going to be very pleasantly surprised uh, about our progress. You know, the other thing is that we have a few surprise announcements that we're kind of holding in our back pocket that we're super excited about. You know, ever the showman, we have to we have to wait till the conference to talk about them. But uh, it's it's nice to see it all come together. We kind of have this reputation of oh, we're really slow and you know peer review is just like so slow we'll never ever ship anything. But the reality is that it, all the things we've been working on for five years are just coming together all at once. And now we're in a situation where we can ship things in a matter of weeks that normally would have taken us months with the old code and the old processes. Uh, so it's nice to see that. The other thing is we're starting to get a competitive advantage from Haskell. What people don't understand about Haskell and functional programming is, yes, it's very hard and there's a big barrier to entry, but you have to write a lot less code. You know, uh, in some cases, five to 10 times less code than C++ or Java. It's a very, very concise language. Uh, Scala is more verbose than Haskell. And just to give you some comparison, our Mantis client that we created for Ethereum in Ethereum Classic was only 13,000 lines of code. The Bitcoin core client, I think, is 120,000 lines. So when you use functional approaches and functional languages, you get much faster QA, much faster uh, ability to fix bugs and just simply a lot less code to deal with than your imperative counterparts. So you pay a huge price up front in tooling and getting it to work well on Windows and all this other stuff. But then you enjoy this really beautiful tale where you can just move faster and faster and faster after you get over all of those issues with CI and QA and so forth. And then that's what we're now in. We're starting to take off and have that velocity. And it's uh, just so beautiful to see that. Uh, the foundation's doing a great job as well. They've got the CIP committee finally out the gate. You know, Bitcoin has BIPs and Ethereum has IPs. And these are basically the units of improvement for de decentralized improvement in the system. And so they finally got that committee out the gate and we have our first SIP. And uh, eventually we're going to pivot all development towards that. So we look more like a traditional open source project. Uh, we recently joined the Hyperledger Foundation, uh, which is a subset of Linux uh, Foundation. And we're going to be uh, doing a lot of great work there. Uh, we're probably also going to join the W3C as well. So we can start working within the Interledger and the web paints groups. And then we have all these great ancillary products that are coming out as well, like our identity product, Prism. We're going to do a major demo at the uh, at the summit. 
uh, in July. And then uh, we should give you guys a beautiful roadmap to show how we're going to get that out in market to compete with Microsoft's offerings and the other offerings uh, probably before the end of the year. And what's nice is that's already being used in production. We're using part of that technology in Georgia for the credential system. And we're bidding on a farmer voucher program where we would reuse that. And it uh, allows us to be very competitive in the permission ownership space, which is uh, where security tokens live and all these other asset classes live. So it's uh, it's very nice to see that. And it's also nice to see that the science has paid off. We have a lot of great papers coming out soon that are kind of the capstone of the research agenda for Ouroboros, where we really feel that not only have we solved the proof of stake problem to get parity with proof of work, but we have this beautiful road of things that we can do to augment and make the protocol faster and layer the protocol with different capabilities like fast finality and sharding if we wanted to go down that road. Uh, but it's not even necessary with the performance profile that we have. With just a single shard, we can get up to 1,000 TPS. Uh, and then Hydra allows us to go as far as we want to go on a layer two setup. But then we also can go in any direction we want. And it's so encouraging. We see other people citing our papers and writing uh, basically derivative works based on our papers, like uh, Nakamoto Proof of Stake, for example, out of University of Illinois. Pramod Viswani wrote that with some authors from Stanford uh, and UIUC. And you know that's an extension of what we've done with Prails. And I think we're now sitting at thousands of citations for the entire Ouroboros agenda, by far the most cited papers in the entire space for proof of stake. So we've kind of established the academic foundations of POS and the academic world is starting to adopt that and build on that, which means that all that downstream progress, at some point we can pull into Cardano. We don't have to pay for it. It's just free research that's being done out of Stanford and all these other places. So it, it shows us that peer review model, although it's a little slow to start, is really powerful once you get it started because you build a decentralized brain for the entire project. Uh, and also uh, recently, we just created a partnership with the University of Wyoming. We created a lab and they did matching funds. The state of Wyoming did. And it was the first lab in the world where we were able to donate a cryptocurrency to a, a U.S. institution. They took it and the state matched it. So we gave half a million dollars of ADA to the lab. The state matched half a million. And then we got an additional 300,000 funding from the university. So we created a $1.3 million lab off of a $500,000 initial investment with a cryptocurrency. So that bodes very well for our U.S. expansion plans, because now that that model's there, we can do that same thing in other states. And even the students, groups and professors can do that when the treasury turns on for Cardano. So uh, so we're really pushing this decentralized brain idea down, saying, hey, you don't have to rely on a small core group of scientists living in one company. That's an existential centralization risk to the system. You have the situation where good ideas are now coming from the totality of the academic community. And all these universities are empowered to create their own labs and start contributing to every dimension of our system, whether it be the network protocol or so forth. And we're even looking at, you know, next generation technology like SNARKs, for example. We were recently at the uh, Industry Standard Summit, the, the ZK Proof Summit that uh, Zcash and the other guys put on. And we were able to present our new zero knowledge proof system, Sonics which is a huge improvement over um, uh, the things that came out of Zcash, principally because you can have a user updatable common reference string. So you don't have to do that bizarre ceremony and burn hard drives and these types of things. Uh, it's a lot faster too, because uh, you can actually have uh, proofs be constructed uh, by many people instead of one. And there's a lot of other cool things that you can do within that space. And 
we fully implemented Sonics. So we didn't just write a paper. We spent a year and a half actually writing that. And we have a whole approach with private computation that we can pursue and so forth. We have other people working on multi-party computation. We have people working on quantum computing. We have people working on all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, so it's uh, just a joy. I love my job. It's the it's the best in the world. And I love Cardano. It's, it's such a beautiful product, especially now that all those pieces are coming together and we can actually turn stuff on and see people doing things. And the barrier to entry is surprisingly low. Uh, we have stake pool operators uh, in Wyoming uh, who are single moms or married uh, with kids and they stay at home and they just read a few things and they've been able to actually create a, um, a stake pool and, uh, and actually get people to delegate to them and make blocks. It's truly extraordinary to go from nothing to in just a few months of mentorship, the ability to be an operator for the world's next financial operating system. That's so cool. You, you'd never see that with a lot of these other solutions. Those are you know vertically integrated, you know, invitation-only businesses. A lot going on. Uh, mm. Very, very comprehensive update. Um, is, is that where you want to wrap? Because I know we have a ton of questions. So is, is there anything else to add? Or, or yeah, I'd like to keep it concise. I mean, the virtual summit is going to be a huge expose of stuff. Um, we have so many different panels, panels on governance and panels on programming languages. Like there's like a whole 25 presentations we could do just on Plutus. And why is Plutus better than Ethereum? Uh, mm -hmm. Why is it better than the EVM model? And, uh, you know, these guys have been working for years to, to try to formalize that and build it in such a way that not only is it useful, but it's also understandable in the broader academic community. See, one of the barriers that Ethereum is having is that they're kind of doing all this language stuff in a very uninteresting way to programming language theorists. They're saying, okay, it's just a virtual machine. It's metered. There's nothing really sexy about that. Uh, and then what we've done is we've said, hey, there's actually some really good, interesting academic problems and good papers to write here that also happen to build a much better system where a lot of the things that we see happening with Ethereum, like the recent ransom thing that's happened, where maybe the people are you know, creating high transaction fees as a ransom event or something, or the DAO hack or the parity hack, they just simply can't happen with, uh, with this new model. Yet you get all the stuff that you need to have, which is programmability and the ability to interact with off-chains and oracles and DeFi and so forth. So uh, we've had a lot of fun kind of thinking around that and bringing together some of the best academics in the world who have built real-life programming languages. Like they've made contributions to Go and Java and, and created Haskell. And, you know, they brought all kinds of cool stuff to different languages programmers use every single day and take for granted every single day. But now that they've written it in a way that academics can understand, we're now actually seeing a lot of traction in the functional programming community and space. So we can start creating that decentralized brain and get to a much faster linguistic evolution. And what does mm -hmm. it mean? It means you write more secure code, more concise code, more templatable code, more reusable code, and then ultimately better tooling materializes. And then you can introduce formal methods into the smart contract stack in a much more graceful way. So you don't have to be Ed Felton and off-chain labs at Princeton doing all this really complicated mood math stuff to be able to verify a single smart contract. It's just a natural thing that will flow out of the programming model that we have. So these are the kinds of things we'll talk about at the summit in addition to where we've been and where we're going. It's just why are we truly unique and interesting? And, uh, and it's all going to turn on this year, a huge chunk of it. So it's not just, hey, we're telling you, it's we're showing you. Actually, we'd like you to be a participant, write stuff, build stuff. Uh, so it's going to be a very fun year to end, and it's going to be very fun to see where everything goes. Are the two days uh, similar in content, or are there different themes per day at the conference? 
Yeah, we're still working out the exact agenda because we some we have some high profile speakers coming in. So we kind of have to build the agenda around them. But we're mm-hmm. going to try to keep the content balanced. I'll do a keynote in the first day. And I think the Vint panel will be in the first day. Uh, but uh, there's going to be great stuff all throughout the, the entire conference and pretty balanced both days. Got it. Um, Shelley's the second of five phases for Cardano's mm-hmm. full launch. Um, so how does the development timeline for Shelley compare to subsequent phases? What, what do you anticipate um, in terms of uh, actual go-to-market for these remaining segments? Yeah, here's our problem. This is our fault. We, we gave a roadmap that looked like this. It was linear, dot, 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 right? So Byron, Shelley, Goga, and Basho, and so forth. In reality, it was like that. They were going in parallel. Uh, so, uh, you know, for example, we, we've had a Gogan team now for three years working and creating Plutus and Marlowe and the extended UTXO model and native assets and all this stuff. Uh, they weren't waiting for Shelley to be done to start their coding work. They've been basically straight up doing this. Uh, we've had a Basho team writing the Hydra paper and trying to figure out basically what is our sharding and scaling approach. What are we going to do? And the same for Voltaire. Uh, we started writing papers for uh, voting three years ago out of Lancaster University. And there's a whole team working on Voltaire right now. So at the summit, we're, we're going to try to go from that to this and show people uh, where that's at. We have some surprises about the roadmap. Uh, in terms of the magnitude of remaining work, there's significantly less work remaining than there was even a year ago, because the hard part was building an end-to-end cryptocurrency. We had to design a completely new network stack. We had to figure out how to get the consensus protocol stable. We had to figure out how to express ledger rules and formalize them. And what is the formal methods approach for that? We had to get all the Windows libraries where they needed to go for Haskell so that you could have an equivalent user experience on Windows that you have on Mac and Linux. We had to get the CI right. We had to do so much infrastructure to be able to build this. And we also had to design a lot of stuff in order to build this. So that was like the huge upfront cost. But we don't pay that with Gogan and we don't pay that with Voltaire and uh, so forth. Uh, basically, things are built in a way where uh, it's much easier to go forward than it was in the past. Uh, it's like literally things can be added in months that would have taken years before. The other thing is Basho has actually been pulled entirely into a, uh, a layer two solution uh, at least for the scaling component of it. And what that means is we don't need a softer hard fork to integrate that. We have a natural set of people to run those channels. The stake pool model is very re- robust for that. So what that effectively means is it can be deployed any time in the life cycle of Cardano, and it's an as-needed deployment because you, you don't really need to put a powerful scaling solution if your transaction volume is below a certain threshold. You're just basically uh, creating an empty highway that nobody uses. So you have to wait a little bit for the use and utility to grow inside the system. So that's very encouraging. You know, the problem with F2 is it's super complicated because they're trying to shard the base ledger and they're doing all this really bizarre stuff and it lowers security and it creates a lot of really careful things you have to work your way through. And they're having to use TLA and all this other stuff to kind of think about it to a point where they, they feel comfortable turning it on. With us, we have a much more simple design but it's a very powerful design. And then you have layered functionality. So when you need to scale it, you just add that layer on top. Uh, so that means Basho is just basically as an as-needed part of the roadmap, as opposed to like a critical hard fork that if we somehow don't get that done, the system is not going to work properly. And it's beautifully mm-hmm. isomorphic with the Plutus model. We designed Hydra hand and glove with Plutus. In fact, 
the language people co-authored the paper with the consensus people. So they know that the smart contracts that run on the base layer will also run in the state channels inside the, uh, the system. And it's, it just all works and it's very simple and you can do all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, so that's the beautiful part about the roadmap as it stands today is that we just keep accelerating. There's less complexity on the tail than there was up front. And we're now in a position to deliver quickly. And I think everybody's gonna see that at the virtual summit. Very good. So one of the concerns that's top of mind for me with, with all proof of stake systems, and I've been you know, kind of openly skeptical of the long-term security um, of those networks and, and kind of the viability of that model. If you assume that a large percentage of, of network tokens are ultimately going to be staked by third parties, uh, you basically just recreated the existing system of proxy voting where exchanges are, are ultimately the ones in, in, in full control over, over the, the sovereignty of the system. Um, that concern gets heightened if you start to think about token-weighted voting systems for, for kind of key governance decisions. Um, so how and, and does um, Cardano's proof-of-stake design help mitigate this? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It's something we did think quite a bit about. We set up a game theory group at Oxford, and we started writing some papers first about how do you create metrics within the system uh, so that the system can naturally have more and more stake pools over time. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of the very f simplistic first-generation uh, systems like DPoS, for example, they just fixed the quorum. They said 101 Dalmatians, 21, whatever the hell it is, and there you go. And, of course, the exchanges basically dominate that because that's where all the tokens tend to live. And then you see that hostile takeovers are possible, like what happened with uh, Steam and these types of things. So it's not a very particularly appealing protocol. So we created a situation where you can create saturation parameters and pledging mechanisms and these other things. And what's nice about that is that you can tune these in ways to actually prevent exchange participation. For example, if you say that you have to lock coins for a pledge, that actually it would be illegal for a lot of exchanges to participate because they are on-demand accounts. So if a customer mm -hmm. comes and wants to pull their money out, they have to have the money to do that. If they've locked the token, they can't. So that's one example of where regulation actually helps you create the centralization inside the system. And so we're exploring that both on the voting side as well as on the pledge mechanic and the staking side. So first is good game theoretic research. That's one dimension and there's no substitute for that. So you get a good core group of people, you get a good group of pioneers, you run the system, and then you treat them as small business owners, eventually hoping to become larger businesses, and you work in tandem with them to make sure that the system gets more and more diverse over time, more and more geographically distributed over time, and more and more stake pools over time. So that's one dimension of it. The second dimension is that you need to eventually move to a resource that isn't exclusively stake, but something else, maybe proof of merit. Uh, and that's a whole different axis of research that needs to happen in the next generation protocols for proof of stake. Stake is very appealing because the people who tend to own the most of the token have the strongest financial incentive to behave in a way that's good for the system. You'd think that there's a direct alignment. Mining is a little different. It's an exogenous resource. And if you have two chains that have relatively the same hash power and relatively the same uh, consensus algorithm. The problem is that you actually have an incentive to destroy one chain and then switch all of your mining over to the other chain. So you have to be really delicate and careful with proof of work. It has its own incentive flaws and it also tends towards hyper-centralization over time. There's just no way to get around that because of vertical integration of, of subsidized power and, and patented ASICs and these types of things. So you have to look for different resources 
within your proof of stake system. And those can actually materialize over time. You can create an idea of a merit token where uh, experts who are within the system start accruing those as a consequence of actions that they do. And then those can actually be weighted as well for delegation purposes and staking purposes as well. So uh, this is another vertical that we're examining. And then third, you have to look at your security properties of proof of stake. So basically, how do people check each other? What are the consequences of failure? So one of the reasons why it took so long for Ouroboros to get out of the gate was that we actually wanted to know explicitly all the security properties of Bitcoin. So we wanted to understand what bootstrapping from Genesis looked like and the synchronization model and have a formal definition of security for a blockchain and so forth. Because it's not good enough just to write a protocol. You have to say, does this protocol do everything my competitor does? So I have to be fair to my competitor. I have to formally model all the things that my competitor does. And it turns out that proof of work gives you a lot of amazing stuff. Okay. It's not, uh, it's not just a trivial thing. There's, there's some cool stuff. There's huge trade-offs, but there's some really cool benefits of proof of work. And it took us years to formally model those benefits with the GKL model and the synchronization model and years to replicate all those benefits with the design of our uh, proof of stake protocol. So, you know, concisely, one is about expanding your set of consensus so you have thousands of participants, creating clever hacks so that you can exclude certain types of participants, like people who hold the token but don't own the token, for example, exchanges. Two, diversify your resource to go beyond just the raw holding of the stake to other resources as well, and then create a, a, a basically a portfolio of resources that ultimately are connected to consensus. And then three, clearly understand the model that you're trying to uh, basically achieve. Uh, the good news is we've replicated all the security properties from the synchronization properties to adaptive security uh, to the ability to bootstrap from Genesis and so forth. So we're really happy about the theory side of it. But then there's just good old fashioned incentives design and game theory that has to be worked out and so forth. And at the end of the day, you know, don't take my word for it. We just have to launch the system. And if the system over time gets more decentralized, if the system over time has more egalitarian distribution and participation, and if the system over time is more and more stable, it seems to be accelerating in its growth, well, then that, that works. Uh, so far, no one in the proof of stake space has achieved that yet you know, is by, by market cap or by adoption. But I think within the next two, three years, we should see that uh, change dramatically as all these new protocols come online. And it's also important to have a broad spectrum of people working on the problem, which is why we did uh, the peer review, because we wanted to have many universities, many diversity of people thinking about this problem, because they realize if they solve it, this is potentially a Turing Prize. That's the Nobel Prize of computer science. This is a big deal for a person's academic career. So you want to create a career incentive for the brightest minds in the world to come up every day and write papers and chase what we're doing. So you have to create a lingual franco that they feel comfortable speaking, and then it's socially acceptable for them to do this type of research. And then over time, eventually, you crack the problem. So we've moved the chains a lot. Uh, we're almost where we need to be. And this first generation of the system is the ultimate asset test. And uh, we'll all know in uh, 12 months or 16 months if we got it right or not. I think we did. And we have a lot of indication of that with the ITN where we had 1,200 stake pools participating. Uh, we had over 19,000 nodes, uh, validating nodes turn on. And with the Pioneer Network, we have over 200 that have uh, transitioned over. And that was invitation only to get started. So there's an overwhelming demand of people wanting to create small businesses and run these things. And uh, we'll just see where that goes. That's part one. Part two is where the user is coming from. And uh, one, one user question uh, that we also touched on in our longer form discussion um, has to do with the fact that 
history is littered with examples of superior tech losing out to tech that was first or that had some type of insurmountable network effects. And many people believe that's where Ethereum is right now. What do you need to do or what does Ethereum need to do uh, from a negative standpoint? Uh, and this applies not just to you, but to other uh, competitive smart contract platforms uh, in order to siphon demand and really find use cases that, that will aggregate a critical mass of users. It's the biggest lie ever told in the space. And it, it makes sense why that lie is so propagated that Ethereum has achieved the network effect. A consensus built its entire business and marketing model to basically make that lie. No, it's the great lie of, of our space. For every one Ethereum well, dApp well, created. For, for in, in fairness, it is true today. No, it's I would not. Say Ethereum no, because is uh, let me explain. Let me explain. For every one dApp created on Ethereum, there are a thousand cell phone applications created. So they say we're the dominant platform. Yes, you're the dominant platform. It's like saying you're the biggest fish in a very tiny pond next to the ocean. It's like no one has achieved network effect. The Hyperledger has 250 businesses that are a part of it. And there's hundreds of fabric deployments for every one dApp that we see that are being played and experimented with. And by far the dominant force uh, in, the, in the Fortune 500 world is not Ethereum. I want to thank you to Luca. Save money this tax season with Luca Tax. It's the only time-tested crypto tax software that allows you to calculate cap gains and losses and see the results using three different accounting methods side-by-side. Side. If you just use FIFO, you're probably paying more than you need to. If you don't know what that means, consult a tax attorney. Do that anyway. You can use promo code Masari Tax to save even more. Head over to Luca Tax. That's Luca, L-U-K-K-A, tax.com, and use our promo code to save money and do your taxes correctly. Stay out of jail. Uh, thank you to Bitstamp as well. They were a sponsor of Mainnet Conference. They're the original global crypto exchange, been around since 2011 through three halvings. And they've been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors along the way for quite some time. About 4 million customers. They've got a matching engine from NASDAQ, some of the best APIs in the industry, and an integration with TradeView. Uh, Bitstamp also delivers unmatched customer service. Real people, no bots uh, around the clock. They are pros. They're bit licensed. And they've been through the ringer from a regulatory and product standpoint, being around for as long as they have. You can get discounted access uh, to Masari Pro using promo code BITSTAMP, as they were the recent sponsor of our having series as well. Crypto.com was also a sponsor of Mainnet. Times are tough, so they're introducing three different measures to help their community. Using the Crypto.com app and credit card, they're waiving the 3.5% credit card fee on all crypto purchases and offering 10% back when you use the MCO Visa card on food and groceries. And as always, you can buy gift cards on the Crypto.com app for merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, and more. 20% back on food and additional 10% back on groceries to help out during these very trying times. Don't mean to diminish that. Don't know why I did air quotes. Hope you're all staying safe, though. Download the Crypto.com app today. And then finally, choice by Kingdom Trust. If you own Bitcoin and have a retirement account, but you don't own Bitcoin in your retirement account, what the fuck are you doing? Check out Choice by Kingdom Trust. You can have Bitcoin, stocks, ETFs, gold, and more all in one retirement account. First thousand users to open a cho choice IRA will receive some free Bitcoin, 60 bucks worth to be exact. So you can join the waitlist at retirewithchoice.com slash Masari and share with friends to secure free Bitcoin. Podcast listeners receive extra points to move up the wait list. So again, sign up at our link, 
retirewithchoice.com slash Masari. What new markets do you think that Cardano can uniquely capitalize on and open up versus, or, or is it a steel share or build share model? First off, you have to recognize that when you talk about a DAP, you're talking about a new service that exists within a broader spectrum of applications that are going to be developed. So if I'm an app developer, I'm still going to have a server. I'm still going to have a cell phone app. I'm still going to have a user front end. So I have all this off-chain code. It's fantasy land to say that we're going to take all that, put that on a blockchain. The tech is not there. Maybe 10 years or 20 years down the road, we'll find a way to build decentralized infrastructure. But I don't have a database. I don't have a server. I don't have any of the things I need as a developer today. So I have to have an off-chain side. So the blockchain Mm -hmm. is a service layer. And you can use different blockchains. For example, Microsoft is doing their identity system. They deployed it on Bitcoin. Largest, one of the largest tech companies in the world chose to use the oldest blockchain because it's a small component of a broader stack for what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the blockchain that's going to win, and by the way, it's going to be many, it's not just one, is one that has a really good understanding of how do you balance on and off chain together. So how do you take the stuff that's running on a server, the stuff that has a front end, the stuff written in Java and .NET and traditional languages like JavaScript, and let the developers still do that and then say, okay, for my account management or my root of trust or for my payment system, I'm then going to use a blockchain backend. Okay, well, it's insanity to say that we're going to replicate what Microsoft tried to do in the 1990s with Internet Explorer and ActiveX, basically binding people to a blockchain so tightly that uh, they can't leave that ecosystem. So you're stuck. And even if this doesn't mean what's good for your business or it doesn't fit your cost model or your security model or whatever that is, you just have to use it because it's Internet Explorer and, oh, God, we're there. It's insanity. We're an open source world and we've moved past that. Okay, if I'm not happy with Amazon, I move to Rackspace. If I'm not happy with Rackspace, I move to DigitalOcean. So the chains that are going to win are the ones that maximize flexibility. Not only do they give you a good off-chain, on-chain model, and they allow you to program in the languages that you're comfortable with and allow you to use the business models you're comfortable with, but then they also give you the flexibility that when you deploy infrastructure on that chain, if it no longer fits your business model, you have the freedom to move somewhere else. And you can also seamlessly move between the permissioned and the permissionless world. So that's the way to win. The problem with Ethereum is it's it's following an Internet Explorer model. And it's all about token price appreciation. They get more demand and use here so we can boost the price up, boost this up, and somehow it all work. And, oh, don't worry, we'll make it scalable one day. Don't worry, this magic moon technology like Starks will come out, and then somehow it'll make things super cheap and everything will be great until it's not great. And then you lose millions of dollars because we fucked up on the design. Then that's your fault, not our fault. Oh, and by the way, we every now and then have governance problems too. You see, so no one has won. We're all fighting right now in a small pond, and they're not thinking about how do you solve real problems. We've moved to a service-oriented uh, microservice architecture. People are very comfortable when they construct things, wiring together 20 or 30 different things together. Some you build in-house, some that you consume as software as a service, some that are decentralized, whatever that might be. And the totality of that is the experience that you give to your user. So to win, you have to think in terms of utility and experiences and what is actually going to help your user. Now, where are the killer applications for this? Supply chain, medical records, identity solutions, voting solutions. And who are the primary consumers of these things? Are they guys in the developed world who already have pre-existing business relationships with Amazon and Microsoft and IBM? No, they'll just buy whatever the salesman has there. You're not going to win in America. 
the people that you're going to win with are the people in Georgia and Mongolia and Ethiopia and all these other places where you have governance because of globalization are getting hammered and told, if you don't upgrade in the next 36 months, you will lose market access. You will no longer be able to sell your coffee to Starbucks. You will no longer be able to do X, Y, and Z. So they have to go from an analog paper system with no digital side to a complete digitized system, which means they have no preferences to a particular vendor. They're not indoctrinated with a particular approach. And these are literally millions to billions of customers that are going to be there, and they're all up for open. And by the way, you can wire in GovTech at the same time. The very same things that you do to onboard people to a digital supply chain, you can use for a census system, a voting system, a property registration system, a voucher system, a microfinance system, a payment system. And that's where that synthesis of wiring these things together is so powerful because one thing can do all those things. It's programmable, and it can work with Cordova, and it can work with Node, and it can work with all these things that people are used to. That's our vision. Now, let's say we get that right, and Ethereum somehow conquers America. We both coexist, and we're both large players then. But uh, there's a mm -hmm. long, long way to go for both of us, and it's going to be measured in years to decades. It's like 1991 internet right now. We don't even have the web browser. We don't even have JavaScript right now. We don't, we don't have the incentives yet for people to adopt this particular technology. We just see little inklings of it. The other thing is they say, oh, Ethereum has won. That's another one of the lies they tell. Well, what if Google gets in the game? And they say, we're just going to go ahead and put something in every Android device. What if Samsung gets the game? Or or, 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 Libra, or Libra launches, right? Yeah. And so then all of a sudden, Ethereum's won. It's inevitable. They've done it. But then all of a sudden, Facebook is here with 3 billion users. Who's the bigger platform than that? And who has more credibility in the enterprise world than that? I mean, love of God, it's just preposterous. So I, I just, I despise it when people say, how do you achieve a network effect? You know, the other thing is, choose a programming community that you can grow with that's competent and won't write junk. This is what uh, Steve Jobs learned with iOS and, uh, and Swift uh, and uh, Objective-C. So what did he do with John Doerr? He went to Kleiner Perkins and they set up a $100 million fund in 2007 for iOS development. And they had a completely new application ecosystem. They started from zero developers in the iPhone, okay? And they were competing against Microsoft, which had all the network effect and everybody, right? So this, the, the name of the game wasn't, how do I convince a .NET Microsoft developer to leave Windows and come to iPhone? It's saying, how do I inspire a special elite group of developers to build experiences that people have never seen before, that are orders of magnitude more interesting and better than what we're getting on Windows and these competing things? And those experiences will drive huge adoption to my platform. And then because I have that huge adoption, all the developers will naturally come on in. So he used that $100 million fund with Kleiner Perkins to basically build up a special forces. And then they went out and did the Vanguard work and, and got those great experiences that hadn't been seen before. So similarly, we've built a lot of stuff to get some of the best programmers in the world into our system. The guys who write Haskell code, they're not normal developers. They're not JavaScript kiddies. These are people with masters, PhDs in computer science, 20 years of development experience. They're polyguts. They generally write dozens of different programming languages. And a lot of them are domain experts in financial engineering because they're writing Haskell for Barclays Bank. They're writing Haskell for Wall Street shops and so forth. 
And we're the only platform that's going to offer them a native approach where they can leverage all the skills that they've built and all the tools that they love to go redo some of these super high value applications in our space, to innovate in insurance and financial engineering and all these other things. And we're giving them market access to places where they want to be. Like one voucher program in Ethiopia will give them access to 6 million farmers who have a high repayment rate. You could securitize those. You could create uh, basically CDOs based on those. And you have debt instruments with a 15% return, 20% return. I think Goldman Sachs wants to trade something like that that has a sovereign guarantee behind it times of negative interest rates. Oh, fuck yeah. So uh, I'm ready to fight. And I think we're going to win this one. It's it's not as hard as people make it out to be. And uh, I don't have to go and tell everybody that we are going to overcome the great Ethereum beast. I just let them do their thing. Let them prove that they actually are as big as they say they are. And uh, w- we think we have a great strategy. Get the on-chain, off-chain balance. Treat it as a service-oriented architecture. You know, So you have many services that come together. Don't lock people in and force them to basically only be in your ecosystem. That's a mistake of the 90s that should never be repeated. And then get an elite group of people to build beautiful experiences and beautiful products that have never been seen before and get them in to to basically get that first wave adoption. If you get it right, you just grow and grow and grow like a weed and you wake up and you have 100 million users just like the iPhone did. How about that? Shots fired. You heard it here first. Um, I know you've been outspoken on the subject and, and uh, I appreciate the, the lengthy explanation. I'll let you go because I think that uh, you can speak in paragraph form better than most people could speak in, in word or sentence form. Uh, and there's a lot of insights to unpack there. So I, I want to take a quick break. Wilson, uh, I'm going to bring him to the screen so he can ask a couple uh, more technical questions. So yeah, I, I, I love the uh, the conviction. It's uh, it's infectious. Uh, so I kind of wanted to build off of that uh, that last uh, that last question there. So we're talking about um, in that uh, in your talk, you're saying it, it's going to be we're going to go into a multi-chain future. There's going to be many chains that we're going to be building off of, and just kind of very curious what what your thought is on that. Um, is it mainly going to be a lot of general purpose platforms or are they going to be kind of be more specific where you're going to have certain verticals built off of um, specific platforms? Yeah, it's a great question. I and mean, you got a lot of guys like Cosmos and Aeon and uh, Polkadot that are kind of viewing this internet of blockchains idea. And meanwhile, we have people like Blockstream that are going the opposite direction and saying like one chain shall rule them all. Um, you know, the first thing you have to solve is this concept of interoperability between chains. And so you need to have the ability to construct succinct proofs that when you have information or value, so assets, that when you move them from one chain to the other chain without having a copy of the entire other blockchain, you're able to know what you're looking at is real. Uh, so this is kind of the concept of side chains. We've written a lot of foundational papers on this. Like we created something called the NIPIPAL, the non-interactive proofs of proof of work that allows you to create a succinct proof that's quite small that when you get an asset from a proof of work chain, you're able to verify if that has not been double spent and it exists. So that's the first primitive that you need is like good protocols that allow you either through a trusted third party like Interledger or just from the proof construction itself to know that what you're looking at is real. Then uh, you can have cross-chain communication happening, and we've written some papers about what theoretical limitations exist here. And once you have cross-chain communication, then uh, suddenly you have a whole new ball game. You can flow from one system to another system, and you can kind of pick and choose the systems that are most interesting to you. And actually, Gavin Andresen, uh, he wrote uh, a tweet not too long ago 
one of the former core developers of Bitcoin, where he said the easiest way of scaling Bitcoin is wrapped Bitcoin on Ethereum and just scale Ethereum. It was like, well, he's actually got a point there, but it shows you that power of cross-chain communication, right? Mm-hmm. And then it kind of forces a lot of things like DEXs to develop and these other things, which reduces our existential liability on exchanges and, uh, and so forth. So from our part, we do a lot of the theory of saying, what can and can you not do? And we look at a lot of different primitives. Like the NIPAPAL is very simplistic and it's based on certain properties of proof of work. But then there's significantly more complicated technology like zero-knowledge crypto, for example, which if you get that right with recursive snarks, it's like the ultimate generic solution for uh, everybody. But in general, that's that's how we tend to view the problems. Get, get the foundational protocols right. Then you can have your Wi-Fi moment. One of them is going to win. And then you'll be able to have universal chain interoperability. And then once you have that, then it's uh, easy to have 10,000 blockchains or 20,000 blockchains exist uh, at the same time. In the proof of stake BFT world, not in the proof of work world, because there's finite resources for proof of work. So you're always going to have a situation where only a handful of proof of work, large scale currencies can exist concurrently, usually along the demarcation of is it ASIC or GPU. And so you'll have a dominant GPU one and a dominant ASIC one, but you won't have 30 or 40 of them because it's just not enough profit to make from something like that. There's consolidation always. Got it. Yeah, um, that's uh, I completely uh, understand building up the foundations first and then um, kind of see where it goes from there because there's a lot of various possibilities that can build off of that. Um, so kind of going back to that, and you kind of answered this a little bit um, on the on the exchange question. Um, so going back, I know you said previously that Cardano's proof solved, uh, proof, uh, has solved proof of stake. Um, and uh, you kind of went into, you know, what were some of the uh, the shortcomings of DPoS? Uh, but I, I'm really curious how, what what are some of these other, I guess they uh, represent themselves as like pure proof of stake chains. Right. What what have they been doing wrong necessarily? And how has Cardano addressed some of those particular issues? Yeah, and this is where science collides with marketing. Um, so when you say something is provably secure, you're not saying that other systems are not secure. What you're saying is that we have created a mathematical model and we've defined our security target versus a particular adversary. And we've written a mathematical proof demonstrating that the adversary cannot do certain things. So mm-hmm. we are secure against a certain adversarial model. That's how a cryptographer thinks. Now, that's not saying that Cosmos is somehow not secure then and NXT is not secure. It's saying that they haven't repeated that exercise. So they could be heuristically secure. Like Bitcoin, for example, does look like you could build a provably secure model with limited or no modification to proof of work. But Satoshi didn't mm-hmm. do that. He or she just created the protocol, released the protocol, and then ran it for a long time. And it seems like it works. And there's a lot of evidence that it could be provably secure. You could build models to show that. So that's the first point is like when we say provably secure, it's not an exclusionary thing saying these others aren't. Second, Mm -hmm. you have to clearly define your operating model for the system. Are you synchronous? Are you semi-synchronous? Are you asynchronous? Meaning that do all the nodes have to be in sync with each other and have the same clock? Or can some show up a little later than they're supposed to and the system can somehow balance it out and handle that? Or can you just like disappear for six years and show up and the system still works? Okay, so these are different synchronization models and they require different clock management, different cryptography and and different protocol design in order for these things to be right. Then there's other properties like adaptive security. um, And uh, also the privacy of of stake pools. So in the original workhorse design, the schedule of who was going to make a block was known ahead of time. 
In Prails and beyond, it's actually not known until after the fact. So you don't know who to DDoS. You don't know who to attack because you don't know who's going to win. That's a property that Bitcoin has. You don't know who's going to win and find that block ahead of time. Uh, and then you have other things like where do you get your randomness from? This is a problem that original NXT had that it was subject to grinding attacks. Basically, if you didn't like the outcome, you could just kind of grind away until you bias it a little bit towards yourself. Well, similarly, you have to have a pure source of random numbers. And there's many different approaches for that. There's VRFs. We created some. Algorand created some. Definity did. There's VDFs you could use. You could use MPC. The original Ouroboros has that design. And there's all trade-offs about level of participation. Do you want people to create their own randomness? Do you want it to be collectively created? Do you get it from Oracle? And these types of things. Uh, so basically, uh, you have to really have a clear definition of what are you trying to achieve? So the, what we started with is we started with Bitcoin and we said, we're going to formally model Bitcoin. We wrote a paper called GKL15, uh, basically the Bitcoin backbone protocol paper. And I think it has over 800 citations now. It's, a, it's one of the foundational works in our space for everybody. Everybody cites it um, because what we did is we created a, a, a rigorous model for what are we even talking about when we say a secure blockchain and what does proof of work give you? What does Bitcoin create? Then that's a target. And so the next question you should ask is the protocol you've constructed, does it give you the same security properties as Bitcoin does? And now you have a formal way of discussing that. And that's what the Orbos Research Agenda built its way up to. And now we've got to a point where we're refining the protocol, like we're looking at alternative resources and just stake for consensus considerations, who gets to make the block. We're looking at things like how do you recover from spikes of dishonest majority? We're looking at things like how do you compose layer two protocols in an elegant way? That's what Hydra does and so forth, yeah. because ultimately this is what will make the protocol very useful. Uh, and it's very time consuming. I mean, just to get it into an understandable format like GUC, it took a year. Uh, so it's not simple. Uh, and uh, it's very boring work from the outside world because, you know, you don't say a lot when you publish these papers. You're just saying we've achieved this next security milestone. But that doesn't translate to a use or a utility or a product. You're catching up with what Bitcoin provided. Now, on the other hand, once you've done all the research, you get all the magic without the trade-offs. That's the reason you do research. So you can mm -hmm. run a global scale financial system for 10 kilowatts of power that is 100 times more decentralized than Bitcoin in its current instantiation. That's a huge statement. And you get a system that's much easier to modify, add to, and do so cool, sexy things like adding a voting system or layer two solutions than uh, Bitcoin gets. So you get the payoff well into the back end. Uh, but you don't get it up front. And it's a game of inches, not miles, which is why there's so many Ouroboros papers. The other thing is you need third-party peer review. So when we write these papers, we don't just write them, say, here's a paper, we solved the problem. We're not Craig Wright. What we do is we submit it to a conference, not a cryptocurrency conference, but a cryptography conference. And those have been running for since the 1960s. Like that's where RSA came from. That's where elliptic curve crypto came from. So crypto, for example, we've actually appeared there. Only 10% of the papers submitted get accepted. And we got accepted. And the people who read those papers are not cryptocurrency people. They're cryptographers from major universities. And it's a blind, uh, double-blind peer review uh, standard. So you don't know who's reviewing that. And we submit the papers without the author's names. So it's a fairly uh, you know, fair system. And it's very hard. They ask extremely penetrating questions. Some cases you feel you're treated unfairly and you just smile 
and you take it. So, you know, and you just keep going until eventually you get through. Uh, but what's not really encouraging is the Ouroboros line has achieved a tremendous level of success in the peer review world, which is why people use that as a foundation for their own protocols, like the Nakamoto proof of stake uh, paper that came out of UIUC and Stanford, for example. They felt comfortable referencing that work because they knew that they were building on a result that they felt was right. And accurate. Now, there's another standard of proof, which is even harder than peer review. And we have been doing that out of Cambridge with Lawrence Paulson and a graduate student, where we're actually formally modeling the proofs with Isabel. So basically, we're using independently typed language, and we're transforming a math proof into a computer proof. And we're actually proving certain fundamental theories. This takes years to decades to actually do. And we started that research about three years ago. We're only, you know, not even through the first paper yet, the Ouroboros classic paper written in uh, 2017. But it, it's a foundational result, so we wanted to make sure that it was right. And we've written, I think, 10,000 lines of Isabel code now, and a guy's getting his PhD at Cambridge specifically in this topic. It's like his whole scope of study. His name's Cawood. He's a good kid. Thank you, Charles, and thank yeah, you, Wilson. Thank you. We'll, we'll, let, we'll, we'll let you go uh, with that, and then we're going to move into our lightning round. Let's start with a, a, a couple of uh, relatively straightforward ones. So, you know, we talked about the adoption game in general with Ethereum uh, versus Cardano versus all of the other you know, uh, service layer blockchains. Realistically, uh, what are the levels of adoption and kind of the key milestones that you're looking to hit the next 6, 12, 18 months with respect to usage and adoption? And, and how realistic do you think those are? Yeah, I'd like to achieve three things. One, we have a really cool way of issuing assets on Cardano, both on the permissioned ownership and non-fungible and fungible way. Uh, so I'd like to see a lot of assets issued on Cardano. And we get a lot of beautiful batteries included. So when you issue them, Daedalus will support them. So you'll have a default wallet, both in the mobile and the desktop sense. And that's just really pretty. And we hope that Uroi will also do that. Uh, we'll also make it really easy to list those tokens. So Adrestia was built to make it very easy to list ADA. It's very simple for us to modify Adrestia so that any asset issued on Cardano can also be listed concurrently. So if an exchange is listed ADA, it'll be very e easy for an exchange to list a token on our system. So there's some foundational stuff that has to be done there. And our native standard is better because the fees are significantly lower. It's treated as the same type of asset as ADA is treated at. Ethereum is a hierarchical system. So Ether is fuel but then ERC-20 is a smart contract that creates a token. But then you kind of have this thing where you have a lot of inefficiency because of that. Whereas if it's a native asset, it, you can just treat them all the same. And in some cases, perhaps even pay transaction fees in the native asset, not in ADA. So it's almost as if you have your own blockchain. So a key metric will be over the next 12 to 24 months, the growth of assets issued on Cardano, because that's, that's a definitive place of adoption, both in exotic weirdo assets like non-fungible things like and maybe game cards and things like that to just like good old-fashioned utility tokens that we'd see second we'd like to make a major play for the haskell community as a whole and get a lot of haskell developers into the cardano ecosystem they're just sitting on the sidelines but there's tens of thousands of them and they're very talented and i think we can get a very rich DeFi ecosystem and a very rich uh, game ecosystem and other such things into Cardano from that native base, as long as money's there for them. And I think people are going to be pleasantly surprised about that topic uh, come the July summit. So we're going to make a very aggressive play in the next 12 months through hackathons, conference engagements, and meetup groups and other things to bring these developers into Cardano. And we should see a lot of dApps being deployed in our ecosystem. And then third, uh, the fact that we have on-chain governance and that we have such a, a great way of doing stake pool management, uh, another key metric will be seeing 
a lot of state pool operators running sustainable businesses in our system, which means that they can just keep adding more and more services like hydro channels and Oracle solutions and stores for timestamping and random number generation and so forth. And you know that suddenly you have hundreds of small business owners basically running this system as opposed to a small group of people who are in the core. And then on the other side, uh, you know, we're really excited about the on-chain governance components uh, because you can have a whole class of people who are like, uh, basically like the Andreas Antonopoulos of our system who help with your adoption and propagation, but they actually get paid from the system as opposed to having to find ancillary ways of making money like writing books and so forth. So uh, these are three key metrics that I think are most relevant in 12 months. If we achieve them, uh, we'll definitely get a very big prominence, like be in the top five and have a huge group of people. We already have a large community. People tend to ignore that, but there are tens of thousands of active users in all of our channels, Telegram and Reddit. And there's hundreds of thousands of people that have used Cardano um, or have held ADA at some point. Uh, and that's just in the English speaking world. We have a large penetration elsewhere. Now there's some special purpose things that I'm looking at like um, Africa adoption. And we have a plan for that. And basically how you bring people on board is you bring them into ADA without them even knowing that they're in ADA. And then we have a lot of B2B stuff, like what we did was New Balance, for example, uh, that we will do at IOHK. Uh, and you know it's mutually beneficial. We, we get paid to build something for somebody. And then we use Cardano as the back end. And Amerco is doing that as well. They, they have like the coffee program they did in Indonesia. And they have a lot of cool uh, Fortune 500 clients that they've been talking to. So it's, uh, it's like an elephant in a dark room. Everybody's feeling a different part. And we're all just trying to see what ends up getting the most traction. But I think we have a, a very natural way to bring a lot of developers in that aren't Ethereum people, but they're very skilled and they can start building a lot of complementary experiences. We can bridge the DeFi gap very quickly. That's not hard to do. And uh, we can get a lot of assets issued on the system very quickly and offer those asset issuers a lot more value than ERC-20 can. And you know, we don't have that built-in disadvantage that Ethereum has. Do you have an estimate for when that first uh, governance vote will be? I assume that's going to be on testnet first. I, uh, I'll uh, I'll announce that at the uh, virtual summit. I think people will be pleasantly surprised. Fair enough. Fair enough. Good. Um, we've got time for uh, maybe two more questions. Um, the uh, first one, I'm sure there are certain things that you can and cannot comment on with respect to listings. Um but uh, in the West, you know, U.S. in particular, Coinbase is, is right. kind of still the, the biggest game in town. And people uh, take a close look at the, um, the CRC, Crypto Ratings Council uh, reviews, as, as well as kind of the evolving thoughts from Coinbase team on which assets are under consideration. Um, do you think uh, the move to Shelley ultimately helps with listing processes and, and kind of just the internal compliance processes at the exchanges uh, in the West that have to worry about securities law or is yeah, this just a black box? For I, I mean, the fact that XRP has so much distribution and they're in the same operating mode that we are, uh, you know, they're static and federated. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think exchanges particularly care too much. And um, I don't really worry too much about the securities conversation, to be honest. Uh, Cardano has been out for a very long time and it's never been an issue. And we didn't do an EOS style giant $4 billion ICO or, you know, Tezos sell into the U.S. and get like 12,000 U.S. participants or something. I forget the number. They'll, they'll all yell at me immediately on Twitter for saying that. But I mean, it's like there, there was obviously behavior that the SEC said don't do and people did it after they said don't do it. And um, Cardano was really carefully thought out from the very beginning 
uh, to be a true utility platform. Uh, it's more of a question of, is there a certain scale and value to this? And Cardano's right at that threshold where we've achieved the scale and value and the trading turnover where it becomes appealing to exchanges of that magnitude. And it's also a question of, well, what is the cost of maintaining this? You know, uh, is it easy to list? So one of the problems we had is that because we built everything in Haskell and the approach that we took, Cardano was a very difficult asset for exchanges to list. And we recognized that, and that's why we moved from the monolithic to the polylithic architecture, and we created Adrestia, and uh, we created dedicated listing libraries, and we're making it much, much easier for exchanges to work with. And we're working with Binance and others to improve that experience so that all exchanges can basically have a low maintenance cost, and it's easy for them to switch. Um, so after that achieves, and given that we're, where we're at in the market and trading turnover, I think it's inevitable that we'll get liquidity in, in the U.S. market, better liquidity in U.S. markets and so forth. As for specific timelines and so forth, I have signed some NDAs with certain organizations, so I can't talk about certain things. But I, I think it's coming sooner than people think. Well, that's that's as good of a, a non-answer given, I'm sure, the, the legal limitations that you have. So appreciate that color. Um and for those uh, that are, are looking for a better real volume data source, uh, Cardano, about 65 million in 24-hour volume. Uh, our real volume nets out all of the garbage wash trading that you'll see on other token ranking sites. So check out onchainfx.com or Masari's kind of core feeds if you want to see what's really going on with Cardano uh, on an exchange standpoint. Yeah, and One by, last the way, question. by the way, that metric is really improved. You know, it's 65 million in real volume. We actually have a quant coming on board in July, mm -hmm. and so we're going to start tracking that internally as well. But I think that's a 10x in real volume from this time last year. So mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot more turnover, and that's just real profit for exchanges. So that's uh, that's exciting to see that. Yeah, the, the, the quick and dirty is to think of um, the 24-hour volume as a, as a, a run rate macro, uh, yeah. you know, kind of universal revenue uh, that the exchanges can generate from a given asset is, is kind of the shorthand. It, it's imprecise on both sides. You know, obviously for high volume, it's going to be, you know, you're going to have a, a lower spread, a lower fee. For OTC, you're going to have, you know, a, a little bit of a higher uh, market. But I, I think, you know, on any given day, you can take that number um, and then just you know consider that the uh, the annual revenue that the whole market of trading infrastructure might be able to make from a given asset. Right. Um, final question, uh, true lightning round. Three books that have changed uh, your life or informed your current worldview. Huh. Well, I, uh, I'll, I'll give the first one as a pair of books, uh, Sapiens and Homo Deus uh, from Yuval Harari. And this whole concept that the, the world is constructed from narratives uh, is just a really cool and interesting way of thinking about things. Second, um, Scott Page's books, in particular, Model Thinker and Complex Adaptive Thinking uh, Systems, uh, that says, hey, everything is uh, basically like a complex emergent system. And so simple rules applied over and over again allow you to scale up to these amazing social systems like the U.S. economy or you know, governance structures. And that wasn't by design. It was just by like uh, organic evolution of the social system. Social physics is another one that talks about that, especially with this concept mm -hmm. of idea flow. And then I'd say, you know, uh, there's been a collection of biographies that I've read throughout the years, especially from Ron Chernow, like Titan, which is the story of Rockefeller or Grant. Uh, there, I'm right now reading one uh, on uh, Lincoln. And, you know, I try to read a biography every month. And it, what that gives you is a sense that people who came from the past are no different than you. 
they they may have had different technology, but the challenges were still the same. The struggle, lost love, interpersonal conflicts, and so forth. So once you start looking at the world this way, you realize that that history is alive. And there's a lot of wisdom that you can gain from looking back to help you looking forward in life. You know, uh, like all these Black Lives Matters people probably should read Lincoln's biography first and foremost, and then understand that history rhymes and uh, that they're not going through anything new. There's a lot of things and that things have actually got massively better since the 19th century. And they should look at well, what processes were used to make things better back then. And perhaps we could reuse those same processes today as opposed to trying to just burn the whole system down. And that's just one example. You could also use it for democracy and voting. You could use it for socialism. You could use it for banking systems. There's tons of examples in history where things have failed or succeeded, and they just need to be dusted off, updated, brushed off a little bit, and modernized for our modern approach. But, you know, then it'll work. Tezos, for example, I believe is using a variant of the Venetian voting system from Venice back in like the 15th Mm -hmm. century. You see, so there's always this beautiful thing that you can look to history. So read a lot of biographies and it helps you a lot with your own life. Awesome. Very comprehensive interview. I'm glad we had a chance to do this again. Uh, we'll try to make it a more regular thing, uh, especially with some of the top project founders, because uh, the updates are uh, much, much more rapid than just annual updates, uh, I think, necessitate. So we'll look forward to the next one. But Charles, always a pleasure. Good luck uh, with the rest of the rollout and good luck with your summit coming up. Cheers, everybody. And thank you, everyone, for joining. This is the restart of Masari's Unqualified Opinions, my first interview with Charles Hoskinson. We will have many more in the weeks and months ahead. Be good. Stay safe. See you later this week. Take care. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2 bitidiot. If you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.